This morning, if you would like to turn your Bibles to Psalm 71, I do intend to get back to our study of Zechariah. Some of you may be wondering about that. But as I shared last Sunday morning, my heart has been particularly burdened with a subject, um, a theme, and that is the righteousness of God. And last Sunday morning, I labored to try and help you see that there is a world of difference between a therapeutic man-made gospel that's being pitched in our day and the gospel of God in the scriptures. And we looked at together the the reality that um, sadly it seems by all appearances that we even Protestant evangelical churches in this day, that we are, if you look at our preaching, if you look at our speech, if you look even at our songs, we are ashamed, it seems, of the righteousness of God. Um, we, We don't tend to tell sinners the truth anymore, that they're under the judgment and wrath of God and they need to flee to Christ. We tell them all kinds of other things and many things which may be true, that Jesus can change your life, and he can, and that Jesus is his hope, and he, and he is. But that the context of the gospel is salvation, salvation from the righteous judgment of God. And uh, I, I know I was impassioned last Sunday. I, I went rather long. And one of my concerns might be that some of you might think, well, boy, Pastor Gay was really worked up about that. And, and uh, okay, we'll get back to Zechariah now. And, and I thought, no, I, I want not only to help you understand that we are not to be ashamed of the righteousness of God and that the gospel context is the righteousness of God. But I, this morning, I want to go a step further, and, and I want to impress upon you that we not only are not ashamed of God's righteousness, we love God for his righteousness. And we praise him for his righteousness. So that's really my singular aim this morning, is to try and help us together reorient maybe our thinking so that we, we love God's righteousness. I entitled this morning's message, Reveling in God's Righteousness. And I thought, that, that might be on the edge. Um, reveling in God's righteousness? Well, look with me at Psalm 71. This will be our starting place, and then we'll come back to it. But I want you to see how uh, the psalmist here, likely David, we don't know exactly, but these are in the Psalms of David, this section. Here is an old man who is facing severe difficulty he's under attack he's being maligned he he's not having any peace in his old age he's an old man and watch how he calls out to God and in particular that the righteousness of God is what David or whomever the psalmist is appeals to And finds comfort in. Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man, for you are my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many. For you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. 
for my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to my help. Let those who are my adversaries, let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, you have taught me from my youth and still declare your, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I also will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long. For they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. Amen. This is God's word. We sang a beautiful prayer, but if you would pause and pray with me one more time for God's help. And so we do, our Father, we ask, um, as we just sang, that your spirit, the very breath spirit of God, the living spirit, the mighty spirit, the spirit who gave these scriptures, who inspired the psalmist, who made known to us your righteousness, that your spirit would work powerfully in our minds, open up our minds to areas where we may be dull or confused, and set before us your righteousness this morning in such a way that we praise you for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're examining together God's righteousness. And I'm suggesting to you that this is more than just another of God's many attributes. As we examined last Sunday, all of God's attributes are one in him. We examined various aspects of who God is for his power, his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness we sang this morning about. His righteousness we're considering this morning, but we must remember that our God is not divided. He is not the sum total of these various attributes. Rather, in God's word, God is revealing to us in these various attributes the reality, the eternal reality that he is. He is the I am, and he is who he is in all that he is in all time, in all places, to the uttermost, without change, without repentance. And righteousness is, is fundamental revelation of who God is. We might think of righteousness as simply as God is right. He is right. He is right. He is not wrong. He is right not only in his decisions, but he is morally right. We're thinking here primarily when we think about righteousness, we're thinking about moral categories. God is righteous. And again, we want to be very careful to remember that when we say, when we're talking about God's moral purity, 
It's not as though there are these moral attributes that have been floating out there in all of eternity and there's God and somehow God, because of who he is, um, these attributes or these righteous characteristics, moral purity is applied to him. No, God is the definition of morality. What is right and wrong is defined by who God is, by his character. And as I said to you last week, Every single one of God's laws that he has ever given, the laws of creation, of the universe, the laws that are written on the heart, the laws given in the word, even those laws that were unique to Israel for a time, those ceremonial laws until Christ would come, every single one of God's laws reflect the reality of who he is and instruct us as his image bearers, men and women made in the image of God, as how to bear and reflect his moral purity, his rightness, his righteousness. None of his laws are arbitrary. They all are given to help us to know as created beings how we live rightly, reflecting the righteousness of this God. But of course, none of us do. All of us sin. When Adam sinned, we learn in Romans chapter 5 that when, when Adam sinned, we all sin, even we who weren't born yet. Why? How can you say that? Well, because Adam was the first man who was created, and we are, he represented all of us, So when Adam, the representative of humanity, sinned and disobeyed God, when when he believed the lie of Satan that God is not righteous, we all sinned. We were all guilty. By the way, again, if you look at the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, where did Satan go with a serpent? What did he attack? He called into question the righteousness of God. Did God really say? And then he suggested that, well, God knows that if you eat of the fruit, you'll become like him. In other words, Satan suggested that there was unrighteousness in God. And when Adam and Eve believed it, all mankind, we became guilty. And then we can't cry foul. We can't say that's not fair because every single one of us since who has been born and grown to an age of being able to make our own decisions, every one of us has willfully, knowingly, determinatively said to God and his ways, no. No. God, you say, I, I, I should do this, I shall do this? No. What, what's, what's one of the first What's one of the first words a little child learns? Again, I'm using Will and Rena this morning, and they're expecting their first, and they're about to find out. Um, no. Ah, they say other things, dada, mama, or whatever. It's adorable. But inevitably, one of the first words little sinners learn is no. And that is disobedience, and that is sin, disobeying the commands of God is not an oops, it's not a mistake, it's not something, you know, it's just the way it is. As we saw again last Sunday, it is a knowing, willful denial and defiance of God and his righteousness. You're not right, God. You're not right. You're not all that. Who you are and your character doesn't get to determine my existence. That's what the sinner says, effectively. But to the contrary, God is God. And he is who he is. And he is right. And he is righteous. And he is true in all of his attributes. And he will not and he cannot accept or pass over unrighteousness that which is contrary to him because sin is defiance of God of righteousness sin is personal again as we saw all sin is not sin is personal sin is not a impersonal force floating around sin is a man or woman made in the image of God determining to disobey God 
and to oppose his righteousness. So sin is serious. Sin is against God. And so that's the problem. Our, 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 our preaching of the gospel these days, we're downplaying that. We're not telling men and the women the truth about God. He, the truth is he does love men and women. He loves sinners. We love John 3.16 because God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Perish under what? Under the righteous judgment of God for sin. They won't perish if they believe in Jesus, but will have everlasting life. But John 3.36 goes on to say that whoever does not obey the Son, upon him, that person, man or woman, the wrath of God abides. That's the message we need to tell men and women. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ, I must tell you the truth. God loves you, yes, and there's no one more kind and no one more compassionate than God. But, but dear friend, you're in a bad way. And your problem is really not that this life is hard. It is hard. You see, our current culture, we are obsessed with self, and, and we think that the worst thing that can happen to us is, um, is, is our psychology to be hurting our feelings, and no one likes that, and God made us with a mind, and God made us with feelings, and God wants us to know joy and gladness and peace, and so that is good and important as it is, but your main problem is not that you're unbalanced or that you're a little down. Your main problem, according to the gospel of God, is that you are a sinner. You're made in the image of God, but you have disobeyed God. You have gone contrary to God's righteousness. And because you have sinned against an infinitely holy and good God, you are worthy of a penalty that can only be paid by death and eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. And hell is not where God is some kind of mean... um, perish the thought unjust God the frightening thing about hell in the Bible is that men and women who are judged in the last day who are condemned to hell that in hell no man or woman will pay one one ounce more or one ounce less than the exact justice they deserve because God is righteous And remember that word justice and righteousness in your New Testament is the same word. Dikaiosune in the Greek, it's it's the righteousness of God. Justice and righteousness are the same. So the frightening thing about the judgment to come is not, of course, it's not that God is going to fly off the handle or that God is going to be unreasonable. It's the exact opposite. God is who is righteous and good and reasonable and absolutely just in all his ways, is going to examine each man and woman apart from Christ according to his or her deeds done in the body. And God, who is righteous, will exact ex- give exact justice that is due. Now, we don't know exactly how it works, but the judgment that is hell, which is an eternal conscious, unending receiving of the judgment of God, that judgment is perfectly just. And many women say, how can that be? How can that possibly be just? Uh, It's possible because of who God is and because of the nature of our sin. You see, we don't know God in our generation. We have a very, very low God view of God a very, very low view of righteousness. And so we really don't see our sin for how bad it really is. So this is the bad news that the gospel, the good news, addresses. And the good news is, friend, if you're here this morning apart from Christ, the good news is that you and I, who are justly deserving of God's judgment in hell and his righteous wrath, I'm deserving of that. The good news is that God is righteous. (laughs) What's good about that? Because God in his love and kindness sees that his righteous judgment 
do you and me was met in another in a substitute that God himself provided his own son who became a man and Jesus lived to be a man an adult man he lived a perfectly moral life perfect why well because it was right because he is the righteous one he is the holy one He's a righteous man, but he did so because he loves his father, he loves righteousness, and he lived a life of perfect obedience for us. So that as you believe in Jesus Christ, you go from being connected to Adam and connected and condemned in his sin, and by faith in Jesus Christ, God takes the obedient life and righteousness of Christ, and God credits it to you. And on the cross, what's going on there? God is there pouring out the judgment for your sin and my sin upon Christ. And on the cross, he's not receiving you know, a sample. He's not receiving an example of righteousness. On the cross, the incarnate Son of God is receiving in himself the full, unmitigated, unreduced Righteous justice of God do you and me. You see, God is absolutely righteous in his salvation and gloriously so. And so we learn in Romans chapter 3 and that God demonstrates his righteousness at the cross. Can I just pause right there this morning and ask you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you saved? We use that term a lot in certain circles, but we've lost what it means anymore. We're not talking saved from a low view of ourselves or saved from a false worldview. We're talking about being saved from the just judgment to come. Are you saved? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Because the righteousness of God for sinners is provided in him and nowhere else. There is no other name under heaven given whereby you can be saved from the judgment to come. And so that's the gospel. It has to do with the righteousness of God. It's not about some general concept. It is the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And, and if you're a believer here this morning, you, you may understand this and you love this gospel and we sing about it and we rejoice in, in what God did. God provides for our righteousness in another, in Jesus Christ, and you are brought by faith into union with Jesus so that his righteousness is your righteousness and so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is the gospel, the glorious gospel, the good news that we can be set free from the judgment of our sins and that we can receive a righteousness that is not our own, but that is none other than Christ's. And if it is Christ's righteousness with which you are declared righteous in the sight of God, then you have no reason, believer, to be afraid. Do you see? Because the righteousness you have isn't yours, weak, piddly, faulty, weak righteousness your righteousness by which you're standing before God is none other than the righteousness of God's own son and that's why in Hebrews we are told to approach the throne of God boldly not because of anything in us because of all that Christ is so this is the good news this is the gospel and we deny and we abhor and we renounce all other supposed gospels Any gospel that does not include the truth of the righteousness of God and of the unrighteousness of the sinner and of the judgment to come and does not have that at the center of its gospel presentation is another false gospel. And don't you listen to it for a moment. Even if it has lots of words involved in it that sound biblical, but if at the heart of it you're not being told the message by which you can be saved from God's judgment in hell, you're not, if that's not what you're hearing, you're hearing another gospel. And sadly, these days, there is a departure from the gospel going on, I fear, right, 
all around us, and, and we're tempted to that as well. Because, of course, we don't have a natural affinity for the righteousness of God. But it's not up to us to change the gospel. So, so we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of this gospel of God's righteousness revealed and demonstrated in Christ crucified for sinners. We are not ashamed. We rejoice in it. We sing about it. We preach it. We proclaim it and so forth. It is this righteousness by which we are justified in God's sight, declared righteous. But I want to go one step further this morning. And I want to, in the few moments we have, I want to take a little time to push you, those of you who are believers and have trusted in Christ, I want to push you to join the psalmist in, in loving God's righteousness, praising him for it. I think, as a pastor, as I've been around Christ's people for a few years now, I'm, I'm noticing that even among those who believe in the biblical gospel of, the, of faith in Jesus Christ, by which our sins are credited to Christ on the cross and Christ's righteousness is credited to us, the biblical gospel, I'm noticing that there remains among Christ's people who believe the true gospel an uneasiness with righteousness. And it's strange, and there's something off, and I want to explore that a little bit this morning. But first, I want to just establish the pattern that the Bible praises God's righteousness. There's, there's so many verses that... that uh, I wouldn't possibly have time. In fact, just a simple word search. If, if, if you have a word search program, you can look up the word righteous. You'll find that righteous or righteousness occurs more in the Bible than love. Love is right up there. But God's righteousness is even more prominent and praised more than God's love. And remember, his love and his righteousness are all part of who he is. But just for example, here's a few verses. You don't need to turn there, but quickly. Psalm 11, verse 7. We looked at this last week. The Lord is righteous. Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8, we'll get back there possibly next Sunday morning. I mean, not, no, not next Sunday morning. I'm not preaching next Sunday. Two weeks from now. Um, there God calls the people to practice justice. Same word there again, uh, or related to righteousness in the Old Testament. But God promises to Israel and to all his people that when he returns, that he, he, God says in Zechariah 8 verse 8, I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So, so this is the hope that's set before us, is we're going to dwell with this righteous God forever. Jesus, in what we sometimes refer to as the high priestly prayer in John 17, there's Jesus in the garden crying tears of, uh, sweating rather, drops of blood, weeping before the Father, pouring out his heart to his heavenly Father. And when he addresses his Father, isn't it remarkable that in his moment of greatest need, he says, he says he calls his father this by this by this title. O righteous father, verse 25 of John 17. O righteous father. And then in John 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, John the apostle calls Jesus Jesus Christ the righteous. One more I thought of as I was just coming to the pulpit this morning. We love Isaiah 53. Do you, do you know Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament? That Christ is the one who bore our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. This very familiar passage, this wonderful passage that in the Old Testament talks about the gospel. That God appointed a man to receive the judgment for our iniquities. And would supply, provide for us a righteousness that we could be saved by. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, God the Father calls the Messiah the righteous one. The righteous one. So we see in the scriptures the pattern that God is praised for his righteousness. 
Now, now I want to, come on, press you a little bit. Are, are you begrudging and praising God for his right? Are you like, yeah, I know he should. I don't really feel like it, but you know, I, I know he's righteous. I'm a little uncomfortable with it. So yes, yes, he's righteous. But that's not the tone you get. You have people who have, are sinners like us who have been saved and justified by faith and somehow they're going to the point where now, rather than being afraid of God's righteousness or kind of squeamish about God's righteousness, they are rejoicing in his righteousness. They find his righteousness to, to be a delight, to be a cause for joy. They're not shying back. They're not even uncomfortable around the righteousness of God, if I dare say it that way. They're at home. They are basking in the righteousness of God. They're living in the righteousness of God. They're singing about the righteousness of God. They're living out the righteousness of God. They're, they're loving the righteous God. And this is the pattern that's set for us. And I think it's a problem, a challenge, that we find it so difficult in these days to praise God for his righteousness. So, in Psalm 71, I want you to, again, I want to try to help you. Let's, let's try to start with this, looking at this pattern and moving on to praising God for his righteousness. Just a few observations in the psalm. We're not going to certainly examine the, the whole psalm. I just simply thought it was extraordinary, an extraordinary example. Here's an old godly man who is under severe attack spiritually even physically and he praises God for various attributes but dominant in this psalm is God's righteousness so first in verse 2 verse 2 God the psalmist says in your righteousness O God deliver me and rescue me so first if you want to take a little outline here God's righteousness is our only hope of salvation God's righteousness is our only hope of salvation. The fact that God is right and morally consistent and morally pure is the only hope we have. I thought it was the love. Well, okay, God's love is in keeping with his other attributes, but you can imagine a, a deity, like one of the pagan gods that were made up, who maybe generally is thought to be loving and nice. But if that loving and nice supposedly deity that you've made up isn't consistent um, changes his or her mind maybe sometimes doesn't follow through on what that god or goddess says that he or she would do you have no hope of salvation because that god is not righteous you can't Depend on an absolute consistent standard. You don't know what you're going to get. Might be nice, might be well-meaning, might be generally compared to the other gods, kind of fluffy and warm and cuddly, but you don't know what you're going to get. And if that's your God, you have no hope of salvation. God's absolute moral consistency and purity, the reality is that he is I am and that he is all that he is all the time in every situation without fail, consistently, gloriously so, is the hope of our salvation. The psalmist calls out to him and says, in your righteousness deliver me. In other words, he's appealing to God lovingly, reverently, but God, I am your servant, you are righteous, you must save me. I mean, he doesn't say it that directly, but... But he's appealing to the fact that God is righteous for the reason that God should move in his life and save him. Save him in this initial, this immediate circumstance. And of course, save him eternally so. So, let me put it this way. God is true. God is right, righteous, and morally bound to ultimately defend and vindicate his people. God is right, true, and morally bound by his own choice and by his own character to defend and vindicate his people. Oh, don't you love that about him? I mean, I can be so inconsistent, and I'm sure you can be in your sin, that, that if, my right, if my salvation is resting at the end of the day, on my righteousness, I'm done. 
But the fact that my salvation is bound up with the word of God and the righteous character of God, nothing can move me. Nothing can move us. That's not a, that is not a statement of pride or arrogance. That's a confession of the truth. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has morally bound the eternality of who he is to follow through on your defense and your vindication. And if that doesn't put a little, a little pick up in your step, I don't know what will. That was what Paul's saying. If God is for us, <laughs> if God is for us, this righteous God, who's not just awesome in power, awesome in in knowledge and, and omnipresent, but this God who is absolutely righteous and consistent. If this God is for us and has bound himself to our defense and our vindication, who can be against us? I mean, good luck. Not happening. This is our righteous God, and we love him for it. God's righteousness is our only hope of salvation. Only hope of salvation. Secondly, verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. God's righteousness here, the psalmist says, is beautiful and glorious. Now, I know verse 8 doesn't actually include the word righteous. All right? So, I see it. So, I don't want to put there what's not there. But think with me for a minute. Um, about God's glory, or, or the legacy translates it, beauty. Um, what, is, what is beautiful or glorious about God? Well, you can't see him, all right? God is spirit, all right? So that's not what's beautiful about God. Are we agreed on that? You there? All right. So it's not beautiful, right? It's, we don't look at a picture. Um, we're not looking at a picture of Jesus and saying he's beautiful. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, that's not what we're talking about. So, now what about his power? Well, think about it. His omnipotence, his power, the fact that he is omnipresent everywhere, the fact that he is all-knowing, those are awesome attributes, and we praise God for that, but uh, if, if that's all we had, I don't think we would think that's beautiful about God. You following me? If all God is, if, if you don't... Take out the righteousness of God if all you have is sheer omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and you don't have righteousness. You're not saying, oh, God, you're beautiful. You're saying, oh, God, you are terrifying and terrible. I don't know what you are. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know when, what you're going to be like. But I know you're all powerful. I know you're all knowing. and I know you're all present. And, and, and if, you're, if he's not righteous, you're not saying, oh, God, you're beautiful. You're glorious. You're not saying that. You're cowering in absolute abject terror and fear. And yes, we are to fear God, but the biblical fear of God is a fear of God in all of his character. And here, God's glory and God's beauty in the context of Psalm 71 is his righteousness. That's what's beautiful about God. His absolute moral consistency because of who he is. He is righteous. He's always true. That is beautiful. He, he is always consistent. That is beautiful. He is always, uh, he is always patient, always merciful. God is, that is beautiful about who God is. So when we praise God for his beauty and his glory, we're praying him in no small part for his righteousness. We love God because he's right. And he's right in all his ways, in all his deeds. Thirdly, just one more Look at verses 15, 16, and 19, and we, we praise God, as I just said, God's acts are righteous and worthy of praise. So, again, if you were keeping notes, God's righteousness is our only hope of salvation. Secondly, God's righteousness is beautiful and glorious. God's righteousness is beautiful and glorious. And thirdly, all God's acts are righteous and worthy of praise. There's not one act that God has ever done that is not righteous. There's not one act that God has ever done that is not an expression of his righteousness. Not one. His love is righteous. His wrath is righteous. His mercy is righteous. His condemnation is righteous. Every deed that God does is righteous. So you can't say that you love God, you love his ways, and don't love his righteousness. He is 
righteous in all his ways. So verse 15, the, the psalmist says, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all day long. God's salvation and God's righteousness are wrapped up in each other. Verse 16 uh, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord. I'll make mention of your righteousness. There's a parallelism there, a, a comparison between God's deeds and God's righteousness. They, they are synonymous. They are similar, the same. Verse 19, God there is praised. He, the psalmist says, uh, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. That this is the extent of the righteousness of God to the heavens and above the heavens. And he is the one who's done great things. The righteousness of God. The moral character, purity of who God is. The rightness of God. Not just that he makes the right decisions, which of course he does. But that his, his, the beauty of his character, his, his morality. I mean, again, I, I even... I'm struggling to use that phrase because he defines what is moral. But we, again, think of God so much in therapeutic terms in our day that we don't think of him in these moral, righteous terms. Whereas the Bible flips it around. It thinks of God firstly in terms of moral, righteous terms and then relates to God from the affections and the heart and emotions on the basis of the reality of the moral rightness of God. We've got it flipped. I would say gently, this is part of the reason why there's an epidemic of discouragement and depression among even confessing believers in our day. Hear me very gently, dear ones. I'm not condemning you if you're this morning here and you're saying, I'm depressed. I'm your pastor, and I'm saying to you that part of your problem is that you're living in a world that from your framework is largely therapeutic in terms of feelings. Whereas the real world and the biblical world is one of right and wrong, of moral. And there's no Christian who's going to live in this world who's not discouraged. You don't find an example of that in the Bible. Uh, that's why I think some of those older hymns, I'm so happy and here's the reason why. I heard those as a little boy, and then I grew up, and I thought, I don't think that, I don't know too many Christians who are always happy. You don't find it in the Bible. But you find Christians and godly people like this. I mean, old man, he's, he's suffering. He's under attack. He's discouraged. He's pouring out his soul. But he's all right. And why is he all right? Because God is right. And what is wrong will be avenged and vindicated. And he takes comfort into that. We sing it, this is my father's world. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the righteous ruler yet. I inserted righteous. But he is the ruler yet. In other words, when you live in a world, the real world, the biblical world, where God is, where there's right and wrong, it's about righteousness. It helps you understand how evil things are. And you say, oh, yeah, okay. And then you find out what God thinks about it. Oh, oh, that's what God thinks about that. And you learn what the Bible says about a reckoning and judgment coming. And you say, whoa. And that's a, both a comfort and also a fear. And, and then your heart is settled because you understand that the righteous God, listen very carefully, there is not one single wrong or sin or injustice that will go unaccounted for by the holy righteous God. Period. And that's how you keep your sanity. God is God, not the chaos of this world. Time, the clock is running fast. And the time is coming short when God who is righteous, when righteousness will forever be on the throne. And as one author I love has said it, evil will forever be on the scaffold. Righteousness exalted in God. Well, uh, in closing, I've, I've, 
hope I've helped you see how the righteousness of God is, is a pattern in Scripture, praising the righteousness of God. I hope I've helped you along the way to see how you might praise him. But I want to, I wanna, in closing, I want to help you one, one last time, if I can, come around again to a believer who's got a heavy conscience. You've trusted in Jesus Christ sincerely. So, so you, you earnestly have trusted. You've been born again. You've trusted in Christ you have had your sins accounted for in Christ, so there is now no condemnation for you, right? That's, that's not me, that's Romans 8. There's no condemnation for you. And, and you have become in Christ the righteousness of God. That's, that's 2 Corinthians 5. So, believer, that's you. You're justified, you're righteous in God's sight, but you know yourself to be, still be a sinner. So you're saying, but, but I, I'm still a sinner. I, I, how can I praise God for his righteousness. Yeah, you, yeah you're, you're still a sinner. I don't mean to belittle that. But first, he really has justified you. I mean, really. Like, it's not a fake justification. God didn't make a go of it at your justification. He didn't ever give it a good go. He didn't lose on the cross. He accomplished your justification on the cross. Hallelujah. Praise God. Is anybody excited about that? You're really trusting in Christ. This, this is not a fabricated righteousness. This is a righteousness lived out by your Lord and bought on the cross. That's, that's, that's the gift he's given to you. That's the gospel. So you don't need to be afraid of the condemnation. Oh, grieve over your sin and repent of it, yes. But, but you're not condemned. And lastly, I need to say, what did he do when he brought you to himself? Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You, you trusted, yes, but then you recognized that God was at work in my heart. He convicted me of sin. He, he brought me to new life. And... In Jeremiah 31, when God talks about the new covenant he establishes with Israel and Judah and with his people, all who believe, he says about his law, he says, I'll write it on their heart. You see, if you're truly born again and in Christ, oh, I know you continue to sin, but you see, here's what God's done in your heart. He's taken his good and reasonable and right law that reflects who he is, and he's lovingly inscribed it in your heart, meaning that truly born-again believer, I've got something to tell you. You love righteousness. You do. Because he's put a new nature and made you a new heart. You're learning what's righteous, but you love God, and God is righteous, and you love righteousness. And it's a battle. You still love some of your old ways and so forth, but if you're born again and if you trusted in Christ, that's a work of God and he's taken his righteousness and not only imputed it to you by, and brought you uh, to faith in Christ, but he's actually changed your heart. So that John the Apostle says, if, we, if you know that God is righteous, you know also that everyone who does righteousness has been born of him. You have a new relationship to righteousness. Let me put it that way simply and succinctly. You, believer, have a new relationship to righteousness. God is righteous. You love God. God's ways are righteous. You love his ways. You're learning his ways. So that Titus chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that the gospel, the grace of God has come, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, so that we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We're, we're, as believers, we're not uneasy with righteousness. This is, our, this is our air that we breathe. Not because of we've created something, but because of God's gift. And so, we love God for his righteousness. We praise God for his righteousness. And we are changed, we who believe in Christ, who are recipients of the grace of God. We are changed to be righteous ones. After all, most often in the New Testament, what are you called, believer? You're not called a believer. 
It's not what you're called in the New Testament. You're called a saint. I didn't write the letter. God did. And when he redeems you, he calls you a holy one, a saint. He calls you one of his righteous ones. So that Jesus, in close, with this I close, in Revelation 22, verse 11, the Bible ends with Jesus talking about righteousness. Jesus says at the close of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 11, let the one who does unrighteousness still do unrighteousness. Let me just pause there. Does Jesus really want people to do unrighteousness? Of course not. But that's a warning. That's a warning to an arrogant, proud, lawless age. Jesus is is sending a warning there. You want to carry on in disobedience, willful, and you don't think that a reckoning is coming? Let the one who does unrighteousness still do unrighteousness. Jesus is calling the world's bluff. You don't want to to meet Jesus that way. But then he says, and let the one who is righteous, who might that be? The one who is righteous. That's you, believer. Let the one who is righteous still do righteousness. Let's pray. So God, we pray that you would help us to do righteousness. Because we love you, because we love your ways, we love your laws, we love your commands, we love your patterns. We want our lives to reflect the reality of who you are. We praise you, God, for your righteousness. And yes, we confess our, our unrighteousness by nature. We confess it. We confess that we have no righteousness of our own by which we can be made right with you. But by your grace, through faith in your Son, declared righteous, justified in your sight, we come full circle we, to the, origination, the original purpose for which you created us, which was to reflect your image, to be your image. We love your righteousness. We love you, the righteous one, our God, our Lord. And we pray, Holy Spirit, help us now to live righteous lives in honor to our God. Amen.